This is Dad, episode 16 special guest. Thank you for listening to Most Wanted. Welcome back to part three of Andrew Kunanen. We couldn't wait to make you wait a whole week for this dramatic conclusion. I am Lauren. And I'm Amanda. Sissy, are you ready to get started for part three? I'm so ready. I'm so ready to tell you the end of the story. Perfect. Um, well, I think we should jump right in. This is going to be an ad-free bonus episode for you guys. Yep, so it sure is. Uh, would you like me to recap last week's episode for you? I would. I, you, I <laughs> Can I tell you what I wrote at the beginning of my script? Yes, So absolutely. I want you to know, uh, everyone, but you, I... Because of my summer class, I wrote all three parts of this script, like basically on the same day. <laughs> mm-hmm. So when I started the third part, I wrote, guess who's back, back again. <laughs> Andrew's back. Tell no friends. He'll probably kill him. Yeah, he's Andrew's horrible. Back. Don't tell Andrew's anyone. Back. Andrew's back. <laughs> yes. Andrew's back. Which is actually a good song, but not when we're talking about this guy. Yeah, no, not not with this guy. So, yes, I would like you to tell us what's happened so far in as okay. brief as possible terms. But I do know that you took like five pages of notes. So. I did take five pages of notes. So your source is Vulgar Favors by Maureen Orth. Yep, um, yep. Excellent book. Jeff, Jeff Trails has been murdered so far. Yep, yep, yep. Um, David, oh, I apparently Madsen. did not write down. Thank you. I did not write down his last <laughs> David name. David Madsen. David yep. Madsen. Um, one of them, oh, Jeff was murdered in front of David. Yes. By Andrew. Yes. And then David was murdered almost immediately after, maybe in a day, maybe in three days. We aren't sure. Yeah. Yep. Not exactly sure on the timeline. Yep. And he was out in Chisago County. Yes. Where David was murdered. Yep. Yes, um, and I have Andrew equals sociopath. Mm-hmm. Um, we think My, that that's the, that's just me saying that. As far as I know, he was never diagnosed with anything. Oh, oh, okay, sorry, that was my misunderstanding. But it's in a box I have in my notes, so apparently I agree with you. <laughs> um, we think that maybe a motive. This is also speculation. I think that Jeff and David refused to sell Andrew's drugs for him. So yep, motive possibility. question mark. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Tichich outed Jeff to his family. The mm-hmm. gay love triangle was their theory at first as to oh, what that's right. was going on. Yeah, that's right. See, I'm just I'm brushing over these as quick as possible. No, you're good. Uh, oh, so the third person is Lee Miglin. He is yep, the third yep. person that has been killed. Um, there was suspicion because his wife Marilyn was out of town. Lee always picked her up. He did not. Uh, Marilyn found ice cream and then determined something was wrong. Apparently, I thought yeah, that there was, was important. There was melted ice cream in a tub on the counter, and Lee was very clean. He was a neat freak. Oh, so yes. And then I wrote, tip off. nine one one never dispatched anyone to the house because, God forbid, she's mm-hmm. a fucking woman. Andrew yep. had dinner, took a shower in the home. Lee was found yep. in the garage, head full. It's even taped. grosser. Andrew Andrew took a bath. Oh, that's oh. Look. Oh, I yeah, hate that. Even, even grosser. <laughs> uh, Lee was found in his garage. His head was fully taped, yep. stabbed, and nearly decapitated. 
Yeah. And there was two 50 pound bags of cement on his chest, breaking every single rib. Um, yep. Who's Norman? Norman was uh, the sugar daddy that from Andrew the had. The very first one. Yeah, from the very first episode. I think you probably wrote his name down because we were trying to figure out how Andrew might have known Lee and they were in yep. that yep. Delta Moo. Norman Gamma <laughs> Moo. It's I know. Delta New, but we wanted Gamma Moo. <laughs> and then my last note is Andrew left Chicago and Shisago and MSP are sitting with their thumbs in their anal cavities. That is literally my last note from last week. So That is right about where we left off. That's excellent. Thank also, you for that. When you laughed at my funny, it did cut out again. Uh, I know. My laugh, I, I, I laugh so much at Lauren, and apparently you never get to hear it. Which I, Oh, I, I cut it all because it's like cricket, cricket, cricket. I hey, know. Hooters. It sounds so stupid. I'm always laughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was our not very brief recap. But, Sissy, let's get going for part three. Yes. So I want to tell you sources. And yes. then... Uh, content warnings, and then we can get into the story. So we finally arrived at the final installment of the story. So I can finally give you my full list of sources. It is long, but I am excited. So this is where I found info. Obviously, Vulgar Favors by Maureen Orth. I've talked about it many times. It's my main source, but it's fantastic. I also got information from articles in The Mirror, The Wrap, The Washington Post, Town and Country, Pop Sugar, The San Diego Reader, Harper's Bazaar, Min Post, Refinery29, CBS News Chicago, ABC7 Chicago, The History Channel, The Advocate, and Vanity Fair, along with information from HIV.gov and Wikipedia. <laughs> when I listen to stuff on 1.5 speed, you're going to be like... So I read lots of lots and lots of things for this uh, series that we well, are talking about. I was going to say, this is a big old doozy. So, I mean, makes sense. It, yeah, for sure. Um, content warnings for this week. So I've been kind of doing content warnings per week. So we've got more murder this week. Um, we do have suicide this week. We have more homophobia because it's ever present in this story. And then some more abysmal police work. Wonderful. Let's yep. fucking go. Let's go. Okay. So we left the story with Andrew fleeing Chicago in Lee Miglin's stolen Lexus. What the Chicago PD discovered pretty quickly is that the car phone in the Lexus was activated when the car was turned on. So we're starting right away. They kind of had a break. I mean, like, it's a Lexus and obviously it's going to have like the fancy features, right? This guy had money. Why not? So uh, he was essentially driving a homing beacon and they could follow him as he was driving along. He didn't know this for a while. Chicago PD were able to follow him as he drove east and they were trying to keep this under wraps. However, um, someone in the Chicago PD leaked this information to the press. And the media started reporting that the car had this car phone that was like projecting where the location was. So naturally, Andrew was listening to the radio. So he heard this information and started to panic. Uh, he tried ripping the car phone out of the car. He tried cutting the wires. He destroyed the antenna, like pulled it all the way apart. But what he didn't understand was that the actual like GPS tracker part was in the trunk. So he did all that. He like was like mutilating this car and not 
getting rid of the homing beacon that he was driving. <laughs> Do you want to know what's really funny? Is that since I work in the car industry, people think that just because we sell the cars, that we also can track people's cars. So, like, if they have OnStar and all that stuff, they think we can track legal. them. Yeah. Uh, no, it's not. But do you know how many people call us and say, my car was stolen, please track it for me? Okay, but if your car was not stolen, what invasion of privacy is that? Yeah. So, there have actually been, like, court rulings saying that, like, putting trackers on cars is a, an invasion of privacy. There's a whole standard of, um, like, I'm going to get the name wrong because it's been a while since I, uh, like, read about it, but, like, reasonable expectation of privacy. There's this whole standard that has a whole bunch of court cases about it, and it was deemed probably in the last 15 years or so that, like, police can't just put trackers on cars anymore either, which means they also can't use existing trackers to do this. So, like, the way this was happening probably wouldn't work in the same way. They would just, they'd have to get a search warrant, which would probably happen very quickly anyway. But mm-hmm. yeah, like, so that's why it's been, as a small aside, it's been a big deal that like air tags, people are putting oh. air tags on people's mm-hmm. cars to track them. And it's super creepy. And luckily iPhones can pick up on like, hey, there's this air tag that's moving with you. Is yep. it yours? Do you do you want it? And that's how some people are figuring out that like they're being tracked. But if you don't, if you have an Android phone, and someone puts an AirTag on your car, you'll never yes. know, right? Well- so back to Andrew. Um, he thought he fixed it. He pulled the antenna out and all the stuff. It was still in the trunk. So the Chicago PD was able to continue tracking him, except now he knew about it. So this is what we know. Um, he, I believe it was May 3rd. Now I don't have my old scripts in front of me. I'm pretty sure it was May 3rd that they found Lee Miglin dead. On May 4th, the car phone was activated in Union County, Pennsylvania, which is about the middle of the state on Interstate 80. Uh, it's speculated in Orth's book that he spent some time in New York City. And in the American Crime Story show, he ends up at the Versace store in New York at this time, like they are because the show is like the assassination of Johnny Versace. Like they're really trying to tie Versace into all of it, even though there's a decent chance he, yeah, yeah. like wasn't related to any of it. I I think we mentioned that they maybe one time saw each other at dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Um, So, but in the show, he ends up at the Versace store in New York city during this time. Uh, the next time the car phone was activated was on May 8th, so that's four days later in Philadelphia, and then again on May 9th in New Jersey. So this is another point in the story that's all speculation. We don't know definitively what Andrew was doing on these days other than driving around in a Lexus. Like, no one knows for sure where he went or what he was doing. Um, I'm also not entirely sure what date Andrew would have heard the leaked news about the Lexus being tracked. So I don't know when that was released. I know it was several days later, but like, was he in Philly? Was he in New York? Was he in New Jersey? I have no idea where he was when he would have heard that news. Um, One thing that we can say for sure is that at least one life may have been spared if the news media hadn't leaked that part of the investigation which is what we are getting to right now. What what happens okay. next is directly related to the leak of that information. 
Oh, so, no. Yes. On May 9th, 1997, Andrew Cunanan showed up at Fort Mott in New Jersey, which is a historic fort that dates back to the Civil War and the years afterward. He was looking for a car because at this point he knew they were tracking the Lexus and he was still on the run. So he knew he couldn't drive the Lexus anymore. So it's unclear what made Andrew leave the fort and follow the red truck that belonged to the adjacent Finns Point National Cemetery caretaker. But that's what he did. The cemetery is also a historic landmark. But while, while Fort Mott belongs to the state of New Jersey, Finns Point is a national cemetery, meaning that it's federal land. The bodies of Confederate soldiers and German prisoners of war are buried there, and William Reese had been the sole caretaker at the cemetery for literal decades. He'd been the only worker over there for years and years. He was a huge Civil War buff, and he loved the work, so he really didn't mind that he spent most of his time working alone. So Andrew saw the red truck driven by William Reese while Reese had driven into Fort Mott to pick up the mail. That's what people think happened. Uh, Andrew got back in the green Lexus and followed Reese down the secluded road into the cemetery. Andrew wanted that truck, and it's unclear exactly what happened next, but you can probably guess the end result. William Reese had promised his wife that he'd be home on time that night. They had a dinner date planned. But he was late, and his wife was worried, because he'd recently been diagnosed with muscular dystrophy, so she was concerned that something had happened to him at work. I think it was a neighbor that she asked to drive her to the cemetery to check on him, and as soon as they saw the green Lexus with Illinois plates parked in front of the cemetery office building and William's truck missing, they called the police. By this point, nearly a week after Lee Miglin had been murdered, that green Lexus was everywhere on nationwide news. So William's, William's wife kind of already knew what happened. When the police arrived, there was another jurisdictional fight, because like I said, the cemetery is on federal land. Murders, or in this case, they didn't have a body yet, so suspected murders on federal land are under the jurisdiction of the FBI. But when they arrived on the scene, they told the locals to keep working it and they'd assist. So basically, they're like, we don't, uh, FBI doesn't do a lot of murder investigations. So they're kind of like, you guys are the pros. We'll just help and share and stuff. It was actually probably the best thing that could have happened in this situation. Because okay, um, it sounds horrifying to me. But <clears throat> if you say it's good, then it's good. Well, so unless this is going to be a whole jurisdiction little side story, unless you are accustomed to working in the terribly named Indian country, meaning that you regularly work crimes on Indian reservations, um, you probably a, a federal agent would have probably never worked a murder investigation because generally, uh, yeah, long, long term federal investigations it's a long, long investigation. There's no like body count or anything. It's the locals that would work that kind of stuff because murder isn't a federal crime unless it's on federal land. So that's where it's funny. So like, especially in New Jersey, it's like all cities, like they would have probably never guessed that there would ever be a murder on federal land. So they were just like, you guys know what you're doing. We're here. We're, you know, we'll do what you need to do, what you need our help with, but you're the pros. So yeah, not good anyway. So this makes me so sad. Yeah. So 
Everyone's there. They went into the office and they saw nothing amiss. Everything was in its place except the basement door, which was normally unlocked, had been somehow locked from both the inside and the outside, which doesn't make any sense to me. I truly don't understand how this worked. <laughs> Unless like the inside was like a, a knob. A, a turny and then there was a deadbolt that you had to lock with a key. Yeah, that's that's my guess. But it wasn't really explained. It's just like it was locked from the inside and the outside. I was like, how do they do? Let's take a quick break. Hey, you guys. Welcome to Just the Two of Us. It is your broadcast host, Mr. Zach. So I want you to relax. Put your feet up, grab your glass of wine, and a snack, because you are tuning into my broadcast. See you later. That. Normally (laughs) when I do that, I go to lock it and then I unlock it, but that's my own stupidity. (laughs) Uh, I would do the same thing, I'm sure. So once they got the door open, they did find William's body. It was at the bottom of the stairs. He'd been shot in the head with a forty caliber pistol. Oh, my gosh. So in the American Crime Story show, Andrew shot William because he was on his knees telling Andrew that he had a wife and was a family man and he just wanted to go home. Andrew could take whatever he wanted. And basically it showed Andrew just being this cold-hearted dude that was like, ew, family, and then shot him in the head. We don't know if that's what happened. There was no witnesses. So, Oh my God, that's, he's a yeah. fucking monster. Yep. So that's what, that's what the show dramatized. But we have no idea how it actually went down. It's really gross how they did it. And it honestly could be plausible, but I don't know. Um, what we do know is that Andrew literally executed William Reese. And this time it really had been just for the truck. There's God, no a piece of other shit. reason. Mm-hmm. Yep. I really hate this one the most because there's absolutely no connection between Andrew um, and this guy. He wasn't connected to the gay community or anything. He lived a quiet life. He was a cemetery caretaker. Like there What's was nothing. What's wrong with good old fashioned just stealing someone's parked car? Well, right. And like the guy was just like, um, we're, we assume he was just like, just take it. But there was no signs of a struggle. It looked like he, Andrew yeah, walked him he, down the stairs him, to the basement. But if you let him go away, then he can tell him who's in his yes. car. Yes. He, I mean, you can put the pieces together that he left the green Lexus. So you already know who it is. Yep. All because yeah, that that's stupid fucking person let, leaked to the press. Who is that yep. person? Do we know? I don't it, it didn't say in Maureen Orth's book who it was. I'm not sure that they I would assume that they did some kind of internal investigation at Chicago PD and determined who it was. But I, I don't know. I don't know who it was. They yeah, but like that, like that person was directly. Yeah, that person was directly responsible for someone's death. Absolutely. Like they deserve yeah. absolute repercussions. And I hope that they yeah. were served in the form of being hung by their toenails. <laughs> That's not funny, but yes, I I don't disagree. Um, It just sucks that to Andrew, it would appear that William Reese's life was worth exactly one red truck. So because William Reese was the one, in quotes, random victim of Andrew's killing spree, I forgot to tell you the title of this episode. This episode was 
because remember the episode one was the friend, episode two was the lovers in the nighttime, episode three is the strangers, which now makes sense. Yep. So there's the least amount of information on him and the aftermath of his murder because he was a literal stranger. He wasn't wealthy. He wasn't known to anyone. Like he was just he was doing a his fucking job, minding his own yep. fucking business. Yep. Yep. So what I do know is that afterwards, his wife made at least one public statement to ensure everyone that he wasn't gay and that he did not know Andrew prior to his death. Um, This is where, like, I understand why she felt she needed to do that because of all the other connections to Andrew and his victims. But just like the homophobia just hurts me. (laughs) So at this point, Andrew has a red pickup truck and he hops on Interstate 95 and heads to Florida. On the way, he stopped in South Carolina to steal a license plate to replace the New Jersey plate that would tie Andrew to William Reese. And Florida, because where else do serial spree killers like to make their grand finales? Um, It takes Andrew approximately three days to drive all the way to Miami from New Jersey, and he begins staying at a place called the Normandy Plaza Hotel in Miami Beach on May 12th, 1997. Sounds like it'd probably be kind of nice based on the name, mm-hmm. um, but the room he stayed in cost $29 a night. Oh, roof. Yeah, which he paid in cash, and he checked in under a new alias, Kurt Demaris, or Demaris. Okay. So that's the name he's going by in Florida. Um, so I did, because $29 a night is exceptionally cheap sounding, I did do the inflation. I think you can stay at the Golden Nugget in Vegas for about that price. Oh, but it's actually like okay. a nice place. Oh, okay. Well, in, with inflation, that's uh, fifty four ninety five per night. Okay, jelly. Don't care how sh- well I do care how shitty it is, but let's bring back those prices, please. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um. I wonder how many hotel or how many stars that hotel had. <laughs> I guess half a star. I was thinking maybe one. (laughs) I was going to say, if you're doing it for that much a night, those are usually rent by the hour kinds of rooms. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Um, So at this point, it's May 12th is when he checks in. Then Andrew starts literally hiding in plain sight in Miami. He just starts living his life down there. Does he just put so, on like a baseball hat and call it a day? Maybe some sunglasses? No, he literally just put on like a plain red baseball cap in the show. So I don't know. <laughs> oh my God. Didn't even have a logo on it. It was just a plain hat. Well, yeah, if you have a logo on it, you can be tracked somewhere. Yeah, true. Mm-hmm. So while he was biding his time in Miami, he was frequenting all the gay hotspots and he went back to his old standbys, selling and using drugs and sex work. This is how he made money while he was in Miami, and how he continued to pay for his hotel room at the less-than-swanky Normandy Plaza Hotel. I don't think he had a single plan other than to find Gianni Versace, who lived in, in a big house on Miami Beach, so we'll get to that, oh, too. Oh, boy. hmm So, in the meantime, Andrew was put on the FBI's Most Wanted Fugitives list on June 12th, 1997, about six God, weeks after he murdered Jeff soon. Trail. I'm sorry. The second I he was know. away in the wind in like, I don't know, what was it? May 3rd list. I know it's yeah. not that easy, yeah, once but he left still. Minnesota, yeah. yeah. Well, 
my guess is he actually didn't get elevated until he did that murder on the federal land. That's oh, probably that's a good point. Yeah, that's a yeah really good when point. he actually got elevated up to the the list. Um, he had crossed state lines a bunch. Like I said, there was that murder on federal land. Like there were several reasons why he could have been put on the list, but I'm guessing that was the final like push. Um, with all the jurisdictional battles going on, the FBI took over the fugitive hunt, and it's very easy to see now that they were focused on the absolute wrong things. <laughs> so this was the most frustrating part of Maureen Orth's book. Um, this their is, main thing this was the, is the frustrating part? <laughs> yes, and let me explain. Oh, no. Oh, no. They're, they're, the FBI's main thing, because they – this is going to sound so bad – they don't care about the murders. They only care about finding the fugitive. Like once they only care about that UFAP warrant. So they don't care about his lifestyle. They don't care about anything except that truck and finding him. Because in their minds, they find the truck, then they find Andrew. But Andrew has stolen the license plate. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Uh, Since Andrew had stolen a license plate, the truck spent much of it the next two months parked in a parking garage near the beach. And like no one saw it. Because it didn't have a New Jersey plate. So they're just like, mm, can't be it. Lots of red literally, trucks. Not that one. Literally hiding in plain sight. My God. Yes. Yep. So the FBI sent leads to the Minneapolis, San Francisco, and San Diego field offices, trying to talk to people who knew Andrew and might know where he would have gone. Like I said, this was the weird thing is that they weren't interested at all in the fact that Andrew was openly gay, which was not super common at the time. I was like, like maybe a relief, a weird kind of kind of but like it's so integral to his activities that if they had focused on that a little bit they might have known a little bit better where to look for him even in miami like anywhere you know they i don't know i just feel like they should have at least considered it but they didn't deem it important in the hunt for the fugitive they just wanted that truck and like where would he go so in fact norman uh his old sugar daddy, for lack of a better term, uh, told the agents who interviewed him that Andrew probably went to Miami because he knew Versace. Because remember, he always told that story that once a year he had dinner with Versace. So Norman was like, I would check Miami. He's probably looking for Versace to have, like hang out with his friend. Uh, no one listened. So, God. yeah. Why would you not listen to like the one person that knows him? Hello? It's a great question. I, I do think that something – I don't know if when the FBI figured this out, it might not have been until after the end of the story. But um, no one really knew him. You know? Well, yeah, he, like, he, he, he lied constantly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The only person who maybe kind of knew him was Liz Cote. That would be my only oh, guess because yeah. they met so young. Right. But that would be my guess. Um, but meanwhile – Norman Blockford was entirely correct, and Andrew was trying to find Gianni Versace, who had a mansion in Miami Beach called Casa Casu. I have trouble saying this. Casa Casuarina. Sure. Um, it had been featured. Yeah, it had been featured in several magazine spreads about the architecture and interior design. So, like, he yeah, basically was- already knew what the whole place looked like. Oh my god! I mean, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh god. So. Now I want to do the side tour into Versace, which I'm assuming is the moment everyone's been waiting for. <laughs> I mean, obviously I, I have, so you guys, you can tell me the difference between him and Mr. Gucci, so. 
<laughs> right. So Gianni Versace was born on December 2nd, 1946 in Reggio Calabria, Italy. He had three siblings okay. growing up, Santo, Donatella, and Tina, although Tina died when she was 12 due to mistreated tetanus, which sounds horrible. Oh my God, that literally just gave me the heebies. Oh, oh. Yep. Yep. Horrible. So Johnny's mother was a dressmaker and he got his start by being an apprentice with her in her business. Ooh, my favorite. Yeah. My favorite part of the American crime story was they had one episode where they did like Johnny's like beginnings mm -hmm. and his mom, he was teased and just like ripped to shreds because he was a boy who was drawing dresses and his I mom was this. like, "Fuck you!" Guys. I know, I know. His his mom was like, "You're good at this. If you want to do this, I'll teach you. But you have to work hard. Like, you, yeah. I'm not gonna hand anything to you. You have to work yeah. for it." So she was so supportive of oh, him wanting to do this. this, and I I I loved it. Both um, my husband and I were saying, "Like, this is easily the best part of the show." <laughs> oh my god! No kidding. That's so wholesome. It, it's just like at such a so a weird time. Wholesome. What was this? And it was such 50s? a yeah. This would have been the fifties, and it was yeah. such a contrast to Andrew's beginnings, and how right. terrible his parents were. So yeah, it was it was really wholesome. Um, so as he he apprenticed for his mother first, then he worked for some other designers in the early to mid nineteen seventies before before striking out on his own. His first fashion show was in 1977, and his first boutique store opened in Milan in 1978. From that point, he, he launched his own business and quickly became an international success because he, his designs were very unique. They were super bright colored and just almost like gaudy, but like sure. fun gaudy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, gaudy so, fashion, for sure. Yes. Yes. Yep. Uh, unlike the typical fashion of the time, Versace used bold colors and patterns and was quoted as saying that he didn't believe in good taste, which I kind of love. <laughs> Ooh, I love that. Yeah. Uh, he employed his brother Santo as the company's president and his sister Donatella as the vice president and creative director. So it was truly a family business. Um, and then eventually Donatella's husband, Paul Beck, also became an employee of the company. Um, I don't know about the fashion, as you can probably tell by the way I'm dressed. <laughs> I don't Girlfriend, know. Girlfriend, same. Fashion. I don't know how um, old this softball jersey is, but it might be like older <laughs> than me, to be honest. Uh, but so I don't know much about fashion, but I do love a good celebrity feud. So there's a little bit of a celebrity feud in here. Ooh, tell me everything. So apparently there was quite a rivalry at the time between Gianni Versace and Giorgio Armani. Ooh, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it spawned a saying that I just love, and I think you're going to love it too. Um, the saying is, Armani dresses the wife and Versace dresses the mistress. I love that. I absolutely I love, love that. It. Yes. <laughs> if that doesn't paint a picture of their styles, I'm not sure what would do it for you. Like that just says everything. No, that is everything <laughs> I need to know. Yeah. So Versace would also design costumes for productions, including the opera that I mentioned way back in part one of the series, where it's speculated that Versace met Andrew in San Francisco in 1990. Um, he also did the costuming for Elton John's The One Tour and for Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney for their 1983 music video, Say, Say, Say. 
So he okay. Yeah, sir? he had some. He had some friends. He yeah. He did some work. Okay, oh. Mr. Versace, go off with your bad self. <laughs> right. Um. Also, well, fairly well known about Versace, he was out and gay. Um. He was well known in the gay scene for a long time, but he was not out in the public for super long prior to his death. He met his partner, Antonio D'Amico, in 1982. D'Amico was a model at the time. And the best part, he is played by Ricky Martin in American Crime Story. Um, love that. I used to listen to that one CD that mom used to play every morning. <laughs> I know, me too. I like still know all the words to that. So do My I. dogs no are longer- stirring, so... Oh, it's also no longer on a CD for me. I did upgrade to an iPhone. Nice, nice. I should, I should add could that to my, my workout playlist. Could you imagine if I still just carried my Walkman just for my Ricky Martin CD, <laughs> just for Ricky Martin, <laughs> and I still had like my over, like the over the head, the over the ear headphones, and just like at work, like, yeah, yeah, just just Ricky Martin though. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's nothing else on it. <laughs> yeah, I know we're talking about Ricky so, Martin, but all I can think of is. Tequila. And I know that's not Ricky Martin, but that's okay. Also, I want to say Ricky Martin is very, very good in the series and was nominated for an Emmy for his role. So he was very, very good. Um, So Versace came out publicly in an interview. Hot. Mm -hmm. He's also gay in real life. Mm -hmm. No, no one saw that one coming. (laughs) Right. Uh, So Versace came out in an interview with The Advocate magazine in 1995 with D'Amico at his side during the interview. So they were interviewed together as a couple for the magazine. And there was a photo shoot as well. So there were some intersections between Andrew's world and Versace's, although they were thin at best. Versace and D'Amico like to have others in their bed with them. And in the intervening years, people have gone to the media to tell their stories, saying things like, I was found in a gay bar and brought to Versace's mansion through a back door to have sex with his lover in the nighttime, that kind of thing. Um, It was pretty well known that they just, it wasn't an open relationship. That's not even right. They just liked bringing thirds into their into the she bed. bangs. That's the song I was trying to think of. That's also not Ricky Martin, is it? Yeah, it is. It's oh. number one. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking of the guy that sang it for American Idol. <laughs> okay, so there's no indication that Andrew is ever one of these people who was brought to the Versace mansion for uh, Lover in the Nighttime activity with them, either in Miami or in the weeks that Andrew spent there um, or in San Francisco in the early 90s. So there's just no indication that there was that type of intersection in their lives. So in 1994, 1995, um, so we're in 1997 in the story, so a couple years prior, uh, Versace became very ill and was treated as though he was terminally ill. Like, he was starting to prep Donatella to take over the company, and he was, like, in hospitals a lot, very, very sickly. Um, The Versace family has stated that it was a rare ear cancer that caused the illness, and that it mysteriously was cured in late 1996 or early 1997, which doesn't make a lot of medical sense to me. However, do you know what was also happening in late 1996 and early 1997? You're probably not going to know this one. 
Um, I um, think the Magnificent Seven had gone on tour at that point. <laughs> they had. Just, You're so right. Which was just then the Magnificent Six because Carrie Strug was injured. Oh, yes, she was. You are so right. I'm ending the story now. That's okay. that's it. That's Why don't end. you tell me what your notes say? <laughs> Um, around that time is when doctors figured out the correct drug cocktail to make living with HIV more of a life. Oh. So in Vulgar Favors, Maureen Orth states that she was told by one of the lead detectives in the Miami case that Versace was HIV positive at this time. This is another thing that the Versace family has long denied. Um Coming out as HIV positive could have been disastrous for the Versace brand, though. So they had a lot of reasons to lie about that, particularly once Johnny had died. So it it would make more sense to me if he was very sick because he had HIV and it was slowly turning into AIDS, um, but then was given medication to kind of keep get it in check. And then that's what kind of gave him a second second chance at life, with, for lack of a better term. Um, small spoiler for something you're going to learn about in a couple minutes. Uh, this whole thing was that spoiler. <laughs> so, oh, got it. Yep. Um, it's easy to put all this together now. Um, at the time, I think people were just like, ear cancer, that sounds fine. Like for whatever reason, I was like, "Oh, he probably just has really bad earwax, so you got to stick the candle in to pull it out." That's honestly what I thought. And I there was this big candles in 1997. You know, candles had come around until at least 2000. So, um. <laughs> in the show, they had this long dramatic scene where, like. Gianni's having a fight with Donatella and all of a sudden he's like, I can't hear! I can't hear! And he starts like freaking out and that was when they discovered the ear cancer. And so Ryan Murphy and American Crime Story made the choice to not introduce HIV into the story. Um, okay. Maureen Orth was pretty clear that this is what she was told based on the autopsy. So uh, shrug. But <laughs> shrug, um, for sure. Yeah. And like him getting HIV would make sense to me. Like they liked to pull people out of bars and have sex with them. And gay people weren't using condoms a lot because they couldn't get pregnant, which was how condoms were advertised at the time was to prevent pregnancy. So again, shrug, it, it would make sense to me, but you know, the Versace family still denies it. Um, so this is where we're at. That was my side story on Versace. So now we're back to Andrew to stay in the timeline. I don't like to talk about Andrew. Can we talk about someone else? Can we go back to just Versace? I kind of enjoyed his. I know he has. In the, he's got like a. Ricky Martin too. I'd be okay with that, which has nothing to do with this story, but that's fine. This is one of those things where like Versace had so much life and this story is so horrible. <laughs> like all of these people did, but like he especially, he was just colorful and loud and vibrant and it just sucks. So, um, back to Andrew, unfortunately. 
Andrew was running out of money by the time it reached July 1997. So he had been on the run for about two months. Um, at this point, a little over two months. Um, it's unclear if he stopped wanting to do the drug selling and the sex work that he had been doing or what happened. Maybe he ran out of willing clientele. I don't know. But on July 7th, he decided to pawn a rare gold coin that he had taken from Lee Miglin's house. At a, so he pawned it at a pawn shop in Miami Beach. At that time in Florida, there was a state law that pawn shops were required to gather a bunch of information about from the person doing the pawning and turn it over to police for record keeping. So Andrew presented the owner of the pawn shop with his real passport and filled out the form with the name Andrew P. Cunanan or Cunanan. The pawn shop owner did everything right. She turned that form into the police and then it languished on someone's desk. And no one looked at it. Shut the fuck up. Really? It's. Yeah. So like this is where he was already on the FBI most wanted, most wanted list. Yes. There were posters that his name was out there. Like they, she it was a well-known manhunt. Yeah. Or yep. whoever the pawn shop owner knew yep. to turn it in. And it just sat there uh, while that person yep. was sticking their thumb up their butt. Yep. Yep. I think I read in the, in the Maury North book that like, it came in on like a Thursday and the guy was like, mm, I'm going on vacation on Monday. So I'm just going to like leave this stuff here for when I get back. Come on. I'm not going to say I didn't do that last Friday, <sighs> but I at least got my shit done on Tuesday when I came back. And you're not a, you're not a police officer that has to do that stuff. <laughs> Correct. Literally my job is not like that type of important. Yeah. Yeah. So at this time, the Miami FBI office was failing big time at trying to find Andrew. So at this point, this is months later. So they did eventually in the show, they were like, we just had this feeling that he was in Miami, but like, okay. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Um, they were failing so hard. In fact, that the subtitle of Marine Orr's book calls it the largest failed manhunt in history. Holy shit. Yeah, it is. Yeah. 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 Yeah, it is. Uh, you guys suck dick. <laughs> it was really Which bad. weirdly is so, a huge thing in this story. Yeah, that's like the main theme of the story, honestly. Right. <laughs> um, the FBI had put a rookie agent on this case. So when they got the fugitive case, the Miami office was like, eh, give it to the newbie. Like, they just didn't. Yeah. Uh, that part, I mean, it's it's fine if you have someone to teach him and stuff, but some of the instincts weren't there yet. He was new, so he didn't exactly make a bunch of good calls. One of the things he decided was to not distribute any of the most wanted flyers at all. So the only reason that the Miami Beach Police Department had one, and it was like the only one that was on display, was because one of the local detectives was looking at it and then like snuck off and made a copy and then gave it back. But it was just on a bulletin board in the Miami Police Department. So, like, you would have had to go inside the police department to look at the bulletin board and be like, hmm, I might have seen that guy as I'm hanging out in the police department. Like, it just made no fucking sense. So, the Miami FBI office was looking into the, the gay scene angle, finally. 
Um, but they were focusing all of their time and energy on the older, wealthier gay community in another part of Miami. I don't think it was Palm Beach, but it was just like it was in just another part of Miami. Sure. Um, they either hardly visited or didn't visit at all any of the main hotspots in Miami Beach that were frequented by the younger gay crowd. Um, that part I kind of understand simply because that was Andrew's mo for the most part was he was finding like the rich older gay dudes but they should have done both they should have looked at all of them like all of the scenes whatever um so it's early july andrew should be on the police's radar because of the pawn shop receipt and he's not and the fbi haven't told anyone in the community that a literal gay serial killer could very well be there waiting for them so things are going great yeah it sounds like things are going swimmingly over there yeah, just super swell. Um, so at this point in their life, we're kind of back to Versace for a second. Uh, Versace and D'Amico were splitting their time between different homes that Versace owned. So they arrived in Miami Beach on July 10th, 1997 to spend some time at Casa Casuarina, which is exactly what it appeared that Andrew was hoping would happen, was that they would come to Miami. <clears throat> so now we're in another bad part of the story. On the morning of July 15th, 1997, Johnny Versace left Casa Casuarina to walk down the street to the news cafe to buy some magazines. He returned home at around 8.45 a.m. While he was unlocking the front gate to his home, he was shot twice in the head by Andrew Kunanen, once in the back of the head and once in the left cheek. Oh, Andrew used... Fuck. Yep. Andrew used the same gun to kill Versace that he had used on David Madsen and William Reese. Wow. Yep. A witness who I believe worked in Casa Casuarina pursued Andrew as he ran away, but lost him in a nearby parking garage where the truck was. Um, D'Amico found Versace's body and 911 was quickly called. Versace was transported to the hospital very quickly. He was still alive when paramedics arrived. Um, yeah. Yep. Uh, he was pronounced dead at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami at 9.21 a.m. on that day. Oh, for fuck's sake. Shit. Yeah. Versace was clearly a famous resident of Miami Beach, so the police descended very quickly the witness who saw Andrew run to the parking garage told police what he'd seen, and in the parking garage, they found William Reese's truck with the stolen South Carolina license plates. Inside the truck, they found Andrew's clothes, his identification, items that tied him to both Reese and Miglin, a newspaper and sorry, and newspaper clippings of all of the earlier murders. So he was Holy keeping oh my like souvenirs. Yep. What a sick it's, fuck. I know. I know. It's thought that he walked around Miami like normal for a few days before he felt the walls start to close in around him. So, like, apparently he switched clothes and just, like, went went, went back about his business. It's just, ugh. So, once William Reese's truck was tied to the murder of Versace, the FBI took over this case as well. The pawn shop owner came forward, which led authorities to the Normandy Plaza Hotel, but Andrew had checked out on July 14th without paying for his final night, so he wasn't there either. They combed Miami, but when they say this was the largest failed manhunt in history, they were not kidding. I was just going to say, they weren't fucking joking, were they? God damn it! No. A week passed, and nothing happened. 
So at some point during the week following the murder of Versace, Andrew broke into a houseboat owned by a German national named Torsten Reinick, who seemed to be just Andrew's type, rich, gay, loud. <laughs> he was not a he was not living in Miami at the time. He was in Las Vegas. Um the connection between the two was never established. We we don't know if Andrew knew him personally or knew he owned the houseboat or anything. It just it's likely he just broke into a random houseboat where he thought he could like get by for a while. Um on July 23rd, 1997, so 6 no, 8 days after Versace's murder. Um, a man named Fernando Carrera, uh, who was the caretaker of Reinick's houseboat, stopped by to check on the boat. He noticed that the door was unlocked, so he cautiously went inside with the gun out that he always carried. So he, and this is this random side story that Marine Orth did, but like he had like a an appendix holster in his like dress pants. So like it so the gun was in front and he like quick draw it out or whatever. And after all this happened, he was able to make like a new career selling these holsters so that like people were prepared for anything. Just ridiculous side story. <laughs> oh boy, okay. All right. Yeah. So he noticed that all the curtains were closed, which was not normal for this boat when it was sitting there in the harbor. And that the cushions from the couch were made into something like a fort on the floor with like the TV on and stuff. It was around this time that Carrera heard a gunshot on the second floor of the houseboat and he quickly vacated the boat. Oh, he was shit. so frazzled. Yeah, he was so frazzled by the gunshot that he didn't immediately dial 911. He called his son instead and his son called 911. Police arrived shortly and SWAT engaged in a five hour standoff outside the boat, trying to coax the shooter who they suspected was Andrew to come out. So there was news helicopters in the air. There, like people just descended on this scene. It was nuts. Um, so five hours this went on. They threw tear gas inside the boat. They threw like a phone to communicate with Andrew inside the boat. Nothing worked. No luck. When they finally entered with gas masks after the tear gas, uh, they found Andrew dead on the floor from a self-inflicted gunshot wound in his mouth. All of the motives or all of Andrew's motives, all of what would make the shooting spree make sense died with him, which is why we don't know a lot of details about why all this happened. So, after his death, law enforcement quickly stopped investigating, calling the case closed. Their guy was dead. We don't care about why or anything. Very strange. I mean, probably not strange, but like seems strange in hindsight, especially with such a high profile victim. But they just, yeah. Well, it's easy I mean, to. S granted, Versace is the most high profile. But it's not like the other people he killed were, you know, they were right. they were rich, rich, you know, and well respected. Particularly Lee Miglin, yeah. But all yeah. of, all, I mean, all of them were people that deserved a good investigation and justice Correct. and stuff for their families. But yeah, yeah. Um, while it's easy to speculate on why he killed some of his victims, like David and Jeff, or even Lee, to some extent, the deaths of William Reese and Versace have never really made sense to investigators. Like, why stolen car or stolen truck for William Reese, and then, like, fame, I guess, for Versace? Yeah, that, yeah. Him, him shooting him, 
outside, you know, not breaking in, not stealing anything, just like him trying to right. get back into his uh, essential compound or yeah. literal compound and then just like boom, boom. And then, yeah, I don't know. I would have thought, I thought that maybe there was like a robbery involved or maybe they had a confrontation in the house or something. So this mm-hmm. guy really, it's actually a fucking piece of shit. Good. Good. good yeah. Good. Th- that's the one scene that you can Google if you want to. There are some famous, yeah, some famous photos of the bloody steps. Well, don't, isn't that the cover of the book? Maureen Orr's book? Uh, the, you, I don't think you can see the blood on the steps, but it is the front of Casa Casuarina with like the police tape. Perhaps the blood is there, but if it is, I'm, I feel like they recreated it. I don't really know. I don't no, have the book okay. sitting in front of me. I yeah, did no, the other I, day. For some reason, I know I've maybe not seen, I don't know. Never mind. You keep talking. Okay. Well, like I said, some of this will never make sense and that's how it's going to stay because no witnesses to any of these crimes remain. So something else I want to point out before I close the episode with my vast list of sources, David hadn't quite finished his master's thesis project at the time of his death. So he hadn't quite earned his master's degree yet when he was killed by Andrew. But the University of Minnesota ended up granting him a posthumous master's degree in architecture. So that was able to be given to his family. His thesis... His thesis project was an AIDS memorial that took ideas from the massive AIDS quilt that was made to honor those who died from the disease. So he was trying to, he was an architecture master's student. So he was trying to make like this big architectural memorial for AIDS victims, which is just super cool. Yeah. Um, So even though he wasn't completely out at that point to everyone he knew and his job and stuff. He was doing everything he could for the community that he loved. He is also remembered in Loring Park, which is a park in Minneapolis that I actually live very close to. Um, And it's the same park where Pride is celebrated every year. It's actually this weekend as we're recording this. So they're like setting up Pride outside right now as we're recording. Um, There are two memorial bricks in what is called the Garden of the Seasons, where David Madsen is memorialized on the bricks. And I I took pictures of them. I went and found them. And I'll make sure that they are included with probably both at part two and three, because um, I talk about him in part two, but like I'm telling you about this now in part three. Um, and that, Lauren, is the story of the largest failed manhunt in U.S. history, supposedly at least. Um, I do want to do the thing where we honor the victims one last time particularly yes. since this crime spree is often only remembered by the assassination of Versace and the yes. other victims are sometimes forgotten. Yes. So we want to honor the lives of Jeff Trail, David Madsen, Lee Miglin, and William Reese, along with Gianni Versace. May their memories be a blessing. Yes. Wow. Wow. Um, this is not as... It didn't wrap up how I thought it was going to. I thought we were going to get a little yeah. bit of something more, which, I mean, just senseless piece of garbage that is. Yeah. Um, I mean, I guess what I could have written more about, and I wasn't going to, but I can just tell you, his parents were garbage after he died. <laughs> I didn't really. Oh, great. Yeah. Um, how so much Andrew's... more shitty could they possibly get? <sighs> I know. Andrew's mother... She's dead now, but 
basically to her dying day said that he was framed and he didn't do this. Shut the fuck and up. And there's no way her baby could have ever killed anyone. And oh also God, he wasn't gay. Get out of here. Oh my God. Yes, he was. Okay, whatever. Whatever. Yeah. Like some of these things are facts and that's how we know that she's just delusional. And then his dad, who was still in the Philippines, came back to the US despite the warrants and stuff to try to sell the life rights of his son to like make a movie that he would get all the money from. And then um, also said, my son's not gay. So this can't be true. Oh my God. I guess I know it was a different time. I understand that, but just like, shut up. Sometimes you just raise monsters and it is what it is. Just, yeah, just admit your son's a piece of shit. Move on. (laughs) Just move on. Yep. Good Lord. The two older siblings, the ones that um, Andrew's parents didn't like care as much about, they wrote a book about Andrew and what it was like being his sibling. I think it was self-published or published by a small. Yeah, I didn't try to find it. I don't necessarily think it's in print anymore, Um, but I did see it on Goodreads. It does exist. And then the only person in Andrew's entire family who never tried to profit off of this killing spree was his sister, Gina, who is like a super successful finance person now. Oh, wow. And that's all I know. Like, she got married, changed her name, and she's, like, super successful. And that's what I know. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And she's the only one that didn't try to, like, gain from yeah doing this. So, I just really quick looked up a BuzzFeed article of uh, 50 powerful photos taken after Gianna, Gianni Versace's 1997 murder. And there's one that said on July 17th, people continued to surround the Versace property on Ocean Drive. And it's of a gentleman holding two signs. It says, can't trust or believe police, FBI, or politician statements. Protecting their image instead of the community. Which I just thought is interesting. I mean, that is relatively accurate as to what was going on. They were circling the wagons at that point because they knew they'd fucked up that hunt for the two months. Like, they could have... That could have been so, like, Versace's death could have been prevented if they had tried a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, uh, for sure the last two, if they would have just given yeah, a single Yeah, for sure thought. the last two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a scene, I don't, I don't know how true this is, I would guess it was based on some conversation with Marilyn Miglin or something, but she was told, she was in, like, Tampa or something, recording for the Home Shopping Network um, in July of 1997. This is according to the show, so accuracy, who knows. But um, FBI showed up and said, like, we don't think you should record today. There's been another killing. And she's like, you guys didn't find him yet and someone else died? Whose fault is that? No kidding! And they were, like, super uncomfortable. And then she's, and then they're like, well, it was Johnny Versace. And she's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, she was just like... Yeah, like so dis- despite the way that she handled some things regarding Lee's legacy and whatnot and like insisting they didn't know each other when they possibly did and whatnot, like she apparently was very much like, come on. Seriously? You had two months. Come on. Seriously, what is I, wrong with you? Yeah, so... By There's the way, a lot this like the house that he broke into is nice. I oh guess. yes. Yes. Um 
so yeah, it was a whole, a whole failure on many, many levels. Many, many levels. Oh my, yeah, this is just heartbreaking. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, we should include that link in the blog for this week. So if people want to, they can also look at the powerful photos. Oh yeah, these are wonderful. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I will make sure that I. So we'll we'll do that. Um, do you want me to start reading you my giant list of sources? Please do. Okay, so lots and lots of articles here. Um, one from the Mirror, which I think is kind of a tabloidy thing out of the That's UK. What I thought, but, but I've heard that it's they. I've heard it used many times, so maybe not bad details. Yeah, but yeah. Um, so this article is called What Happened to Gianni Versace's Long-Term Boyfriend, Antonio D'Amico, Their Open Relationship and What He Looks Like Now by Beth Hardy. Uh, D'Amico died in 2021, I think. So very, oh. very recently. But um, at the time that the American Crime Story came out, he was still alive. He's also pictured in, in these photos. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, an article from The Wrap called American Crime Story. Here is Lizzie Cote's plea for Andrew Cunanan to surrender by Phil Hornshaw. I actually forgot to mention that part. So they were trying to do anything they could to get Cunanan to turn himself in. So they went to Liz Cote and asked her to record like a statement with all these hidden like inside, not inside jokes, but like jargon that they used and stuff that not everyone would understand to like Mm -hmm. really feel connected to him and stuff. She recorded that on the day that he died by suicide. So he never actually saw that plea, but it did run on television before it like got around that he had died. Yep. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yep. Um, so two Washington post articles, the first one, called Death Removes Mystique from Kunanen's Life by Joel Achenbach and Roberto Suro. And then another one in the Washington Post called The Life of a Trophy Boy by Mark Fisher. Two articles in Refinery29, one called Everything We Know About Norman Blockford and Andrew Kunanen's Real Relationship by Elena Nicolau. And then another called Was Andrew Kunanen a Member of the Secret Gay Fraternity? Also by Elena Nicolau. An article in Town and Country called Did Versace Killer Andrew Cunanan Also Kill Lincoln Aston by Leah Silverman. That was that conspiracy yes, thing we talked about. Yep. <laughs> That's my opinion, too. Um, two articles from Pop Sugar. One called American Crime Story Killer Andrew Cunanan May Have Killed a Sixth Victim by Andrea Ryer. I think is how you say that. Rear? Ryer? Um, that one's also about Lincoln Aston, obviously. Um, and then another called American Crime Story, Why We'll Never Know the Truth Behind David Madsen's Slaying, by also by Andrea Ryer. An article in the San Diego Reader called Andrew Cunanan, Boy Toy for Socialites Norman Blockford and Lincoln Aston by Matt Potter. Uh, three articles in Harper's Bazaar. The Harper's Bazaar was super helpful when I was looking for details on things. The first one is called What Really Happened When Andrew Cunanan Murdered Jeff Trail and David Madsen by Julie Cozen. The second one was called Who Was Lee Miglin? American Crime Story Explores Andrew Cunanan's Victims Before Versace by Amy McElden. And then A Complete Timeline of Andrew Cunanan's Murders by Emma Dibden. Wow. Mm-hmm. 
super, super helpful. There was an article in MinPost, and that's Min, like Minnesota, M-I-N-N. Um, it's called Remembering Minneapolis Architect David Madsen by Noah Barth. I think that's the article where I found about the posthumous master's degree and all of that information. Mm-hmm. Um, there was some Chicago local news reporting. So CBS News Chicago had an article called 25 Years Ago, The Murder of Chicago Real Estate Mogul Lee Miglin and the Horrors of Andrew Cunanan's Murder Spree by Brad Edwards, Richard Schlesinger, Adam Harrington, and Dan Kramer. And then ABC7 Chicago had an article called 20 Years After Cunanan Murders, Lee Miglin's Son Talks by Chuck Goody and Barb Markoff. Um, from the History Channel, I got something called the This Day in History, Andrew Cunanan Continues Murder Spree, which is by the History.com editors. They didn't list who wrote that one. Um, CBS News had an article called Andrew Cunanan's Trail of Terror by staff writers. Again, didn't list the specific people. Um, in The Advocate, they revisited that original piece that was written about um, Versace coming out. It's called As Seen on American Crime Story, Read the Interview Where Gianni Versace Came Out by Brandon Lemon. And then Vanity Fair, Maureen Orth was actually a staff writer for Vanity Fair when this was happening. And then she took a sabbatical to write the book. So this wasn't by her, but Vanity Fair, for like of its time, had some of the best reporting on Kunanen. Um, This one is called The Assassination of Gianni Versace, Versace's HIV Status by Julie Miller and Joanna Robinson. I also looked a lot, I didn't include a ton of it, but I looked a lot at HIV.gov where they have this really extensive timeline on the HIV and AIDS like discovery and when the medications became available and like who was dying. The most interesting rabbit hole I went down for that was they started figuring out that it wasn't just like for some reason they thought it was truly only in gay people. Like how, how? That doesn't make any sense. Anyway. How they started to figure out that it wasn't and that it was bloodborne was hemophiliacs were getting it from blood transfusions. And that's how they were starting to finally figure that out. So there were like children who were dying from AIDS because they were children who'd been lifelong hemophiliacs who were like 11 years old getting blood transfusions. They're like, well, these kids probably aren't having gay sex. So, hmm. oh my God. It's so crazy to me that this was like. Ever a conversation, but again, a different oh, I know. time. It's just, this was, ugh. but it was in our lifetime. Like this oh, really wasn't that long ago. Like it's no. just crazy. So then obviously the the big main thing I used was Maureen Orr's book, Vulgar Favors, The Assassin- Assassination of Gianni Versace and the Largest Failed Manhunt in U.S. History. Um, yep. And then I did check some things on Wikipedia when I needed quick answers, but it was mostly these excellent articles all over the internet. So lots of stuff out there. Wow. I mean, that was three parts, but you, it was, <laughs> you wouldn't have done it justice if you could have, if you would have shortened it. Into no. Two. So the three was, was very well done. Very. Well yeah. Done. Well, and remember my original plan, I don't know if you remember this was to cover Jeff trail and David Madsen in episode one and the other three in episode two. And mm-hmm. there's no way. There's no way no. I could have done that. No. With really all the detail I wanted and stuff. Yeah. So I'm, right. I'm glad we split it into three and everyone gets a bonus episode this week. So Right. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much to see this was hor- horrifying. Well, thank you. I guess um, 
Thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, you can find us on social media, and you can also send us an email. And um, Yes, an email. Yes, an email. Um, so we love you guys so much. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoy this bonus episode. And we hope that you enjoyed Amanda's wonderful coverage on this dick bag. And that like is our dick con- bag? And that is our conclusion of Andrew Conanen. Thank you so much, Sissy, and thank you everyone for listening. We love you. Bye. Bye.